TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Good morning and welcome to the Morning Briefing for Thursday, December 7th, 2017. I'm your host, Eric Dane, and I can barely hear myself in my headphones. There we go. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on the show today, we're going to speak with the executive director of AMVETS, Joe Chanelli, about the latest items affecting our veteran community that his venerable organization is focusing on. And then we'll speak with decorated Army veteran Jimmy Blackman about how he's been able to find success in the civilian world in his post-military life. But first, today is an important one on the calendar for America, the United States Navy, and, yes, the world. Why? Well, if you didn't realize, today is December 7th, the anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941. The day, essentially, that we were brought into uh, the greatest conflict this world has ever seen, World War II. A day where over 2,000 Americans lost their lives on what was, uh, you know, a beautiful Sunday, actually. This is something that you you learn a lot about while you're in the Navy. It's one of those history lessons that you come across where everybody was kind of uh, relaxing, enjoying a nice, quiet morning until horror was visited upon them by what would soon be our enemy for the duration of that conflict, the Empire of Japan. And then, of course, the next day, December 8th, 1941, the president spoke to a gathering that included Congress and others in one of the most famous speeches of all time. It's one that you'll probably hear the beginning clip of throughout the day today, but I wanted to play a longer segment of it. I wanted you to hear what the president, President Roosevelt, had to say about the attack on Pearl Harbor and essentially the United States entry into World War II. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation and at the solicitation of Japan was still in conversation with its government and its emperor looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. Indeed, One hour after Japanese air squadrons had commenced bombing in the American island of Oahu, the Japanese ambassador to the United States and his colleague delivered to our Secretary of State 
a formal reply to a recent American message. Japan has therefore undertaken a surprise offensive extending throughout the Pacific area. The facts of yesterday and today speak for themselves. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. With so, one of the most famous speeches, but one of those speeches where I think most people only know the first line of it. That was to give you a little bit more of a taste of what the president said on December 8th of 1941. Today being the anniversary, our reporter Matt Sainsing decided he was going to try and speak to someone who had, well, a very personal connection to the attack on Pearl Harbor. Jim Downing is the second oldest known Pearl Harbor survivor, and Matt spoke to him about what he saw on that day, including the moment he learned that we were under attack. My uh, duty station was the battleship West Virginia. I'd just been married for five months, so I was at home with my new bride. And that was about 15 or 20 minutes from the harbor. So during breakfast, we heard the explosions of the bombs and torpedoes, turned on the radio, and the radio announcer said, we have been advised by Army and Navy intelligence that the island of Oahu is under enemy attack. The enemy has not been identified. Stay tuned. A few minutes later, he came on and said, the enemy has been identified as Japan. So we knew that we were under attack then. Jim also talked to Matt about the damage done to the ships in the harbors, specifically from Japanese torpedoes dropped by aircraft coming from aircraft carriers sitting off the coast. The uh, most damage was done in the first 11 minutes. The Japanese dropped 40 aerial torpedoes and uh, uh, about that many dive, dive bombers dropped their bombs at the same time. Uh, my ship took nine of the uh, aerial torpedoes by the Japan. The Oklahoma, which was just ahead of us, took another five, nine of them. So out of the 40, 18 of them hit our two ships. Now, Pearl Harbor is uh, a shallow harbor. That is, we only had about six feet of water underneath the ships. So the uh, West Virginia began to sink and uh, kind of sit down in the mud in less than 20 minutes. And uh, the oil and uh, the paint on the ship caught fire, so everything above the waterline was on fire. The Oklahoma, which just ahead of us, had her watertight doors open, and she capsized. And there the propellers were reaching up out of the water. The Arizona, which was just behind us, 
was uh, fired like a, a volcano. And the explosions were huge, and the fire was hot. And uh, 1,100 of the crew did not escape from the Arizona. To hear more about Jim Downing and his story of December 7th, 1941, the attack on Pearl Harbor by the Japanese Empire, you can visit ConnectingVets.com. And we have a story right there on the front page about Jim and everything that he saw, everything that he experienced on that day. Jim Downing, of course, 76 years ago, telling us the story of what happened on that fateful day. And go to ConnectingVets.com to check out that story and so much more. And really, I mean, it, it was the tipping off point. And up until September 11th, it was uh, the worst you know, post-revolutionary, post-Civil War attack on the United States of America with the greatest single loss of life. Um, it, it, just a horrifying day, the more that you learn about it. When you hear about things like the West Virginia, Jim Downing ship. Now, the West Virginia took nine torpedo hits, I believe it was, that he said. He also, he, did, he didn't mention in that clip, but I believe he mentions uh, in other parts of our interview with him, Two bombs came through the deck of the West Virginia and did not explode. They got very lucky there. One of them just didn't explode because it was apparently a dud. The other one was torn apart so that the uh, mechanism that would allow it to explode didn't go off. Those two probably would have sunk the West Virginia if they went off, those bombs that dropped through the decks. The one that was a dud that didn't go off, that one dropped through three decks. And if that had gone off, would have blown a hole that would have allowed water to come rushing in. I mean... As bad as Pearl Harbor was, with over 2,000 Americans killed on that day, it could have been worse. And the efforts of people like Jim Downing, the sailors and Marines, there at Pearl Harbor and at the airfields around the island that were came under attack even prior to the attack on Pearl Harbor, their efforts saved countless lives. In fact, the West Virginia Jim ship one of the more fascinating stories, I think, of the attack on Pearl Harbor is the West Virginia, where the commanding officer, the captain of the ship, was injured. Uh, he would die from those injuries a short time uh, after the, the attack began. The executive officer abandoned ship at the orders of the commanding officer. The commanding officer, while injured and the mortally wounded, he would die gave the order to abandon ship. The executive officer, the number two guy who would take over for the captain if he were uh, incapacitated, followed those orders and abandoned ship. The number three on the ship, and I'm not sure what title he held. He might have been the chief engineer or something like that. Realized that the ship could actually be saved and countermanded the abandoned ship order, although some of the uh, members of the crew had already gotten off of the ship. And they were able to save the West Virginia. And well, I believe it was about two and a half years later, the West Virginia would once again be operable and start taking part in World War II. So one wow. of the more amazing stories. Yeah, Jim Downing was on a battleship that was, you know, again, if either one of the two bombs that broke through the decks of the West Virginia, in addition to the nine torpedo hits that they took, either one of those bombs goes off, that ship is lost. It goes to the bottom, much like the Arizona did, probably. Uh, luck, happenstance, uh, you know, perhaps bad maintenance on, on, the, on the part of the Japanese Imperial Navy. We, we'll never know, but those two bombs, one of them was just a dud and didn't go off. The other one 
tore apart as it went through the decks, uh, which took the mechanism that would allow it to explode out of the uh, equation. So it didn't go off. I mean, it just how much worse it could have been. And if that ship had been abandoned and sunk, how many people were on board the ship that would have gone down with it? More deaths that would have been involved. So the efforts of the United States Navy and United States Marine Corps specifically uh, during the attack on Pearl Harbor saved countless lives, saved ships, saved aircraft, saved so many things. It was an attack that didn't allow them because of the surprise nature of it. And you can go into the theories all you want about how the United States knew and allowed it to happen because they wanted to get into the war. Okay, you you can have your theories. I don't know that I believe in those. I think that some people have taken uh, the fact that there were some message message traffic from the Japanese intercepted and the U.S. kind of thought that it might be pointing towards an attack at Pearl Harbor, but to say that they definitely knew... Uh, that's definitely not, I, I don't think that's the case anyway. Um, they saved a lot of lives and there aren't many of them left. I mean, Jim Downing, as we said, over a hundred years old, second known, second oldest known survivor of Pearl Harbor and you know his ship lost a few hundred sailors on board. In fact, when they were uh, after the fact kind of uh, checking the damage on the ship, they found, I believe, a hundred dead in one compartment. Uh, below the waterline so they found them that that were i mean it's it's a horrifying situation where i think the one question that some people have is why weren't they a little bit more prepared for it why weren't the ships positioned in different ways in the harbor why weren't the aircraft on the airstrips positioned in different ways that would make them harder targets essentially and the reason that that question could be asked is the war had already been going on, though we hadn't been involved in it for a couple of years at that point in the Pacific theater and the European theater. You knew it was over there. You knew there was a chance that we would at some point possibly be uh, drawn into the conflict, particularly in Europe, the uh, the Asia theater. I think that was a bit more of a surprise. I mean, if, if we had been attacked by uh, the Germans on the East Coast. Well, it's pretty far for them to get there, and their right. Navy didn't have the same uh, capabilities that the Japanese Imperial Navy did. I don't think that would have surprised Americans as much, but we didn't really know of the uh, well, the depth of the relationship that had grown between Germany and Japan, where essentially a decision was made by those Axis powers that were joined together, Germany, Italy, Japan, uh, and others, but those were the three main players in the game to attack Pearl Harbor and uh, kind of come at us from the other direction where we weren't expecting it. It's Hawaii. It's an island in the middle of nowhere. You'd think we'd see the Japanese fleet coming towards it, but we didn't. You know, we weren't quite ready for what came, but the United States certainly proved our mettle first in World War One, which this year is the 100th anniversary of our entry into World War One. Then in World War Two. I would say, well, in World War One is when we first became world players. World War Two is when the United States ended up becoming the dominant power in the world. Uh, we responded to that attack on Pearl Harbor. There's the famous quote from the admiral on board uh, one of the aircraft carriers when congratulated on the success of the Pearl Harbor attack, said, this was a successful day, but I fear that all we've done is awaken a sleeping giant. Good prediction, admiral. Yep. You were right. You sure did. And, uh, did not work out very well for the uh, Japanese Empire, um, but didn't work out well for anybody. I mean, when you look at World War II, 416,000 Americans alone 
killed in action in World War II. Those are military deaths, so I can't say killed in action. Uh, when we look at the Soviet Union, people forget about this. Somewhere between 8 and 11 million military members of the Soviet Union died in World War II fighting against the Nazis. And the total civilian and military deaths in the Soviet Union is estimated at somewhere north of 24 million people. Because well, that was that was their strategy, was just yeah. pour more, throw more. It was the same thing that China did in, were in, uh, in the Korean War, just throw more bodies at them. Yep, and that's essentially uh, Russian technology, particularly, I mean, at the beginning of World War II, it, it kind of followed that in the steps of world war one and that some countries didn't learn their lessons. Uh, having been a, a European studies minor in college, you learn a lot <laughs> about stuff like this in world war one. When the Germans started going through uh, Belgium on their way to France, which was uh, where they, they really needed to get, that was who they felt they needed to knock out of the equation of world war one to be successful. When they were coming through Belgium. They, didn't realize exactly how to do this modern warfare. The Germans had modern equipment. The Belgians had some, but not as much. What they did have is these huge uh, emplacements with uh, you know cannons and, and guns and stuff like that and machine guns. And the, the, the death toll in, in the German invasion of Belgium in World War I racked up so quickly, they didn't realize what was happening, that there were people just being mowed down by machine gun fire as they went towards these machine gun emplacements to the point where the mounds of bodies ended up being used as cover for the soldiers coming after them to not be hit, the the technique and the strategy and the equipment, it didn't all quite jibe in World War I. Uh, some places didn't have any modern equipment. They were using nothing but you know the bolt-action rifle and riding horses. I mean, cars were still a new thing in 1917. Tanks were new. They were kind of un, un, unreliable in World War I. Uh, you, as a former tanker, I'm sure know mm -hmm. a little bit about that. They were death traps, really, is what tanks were in World War One. They could do some damage, but more often than not, they just broke down and got stuck in the mud. And, and, and killed their crew. Yeah. I mean, people drowned in tanks. People, uh, exhaust fumes coming up and just gas essentially killing them. Um, World War Two, you saw a little bit of the same at the beginning where... The Russians at the beginning of World War II were essentially fighting with the same equipment they were fighting in World War I with. They hadn't evolved from that point. Technology had gotten so much better. Strategy had stayed the same in some places, including in the beginning in the United States. We adapted as it went through the Marine Corps in particular in the Pacific Theater. The jungle warfare was something we'd never really taken part in. But in Europe, the Army, you know, we kind of had to uh, change our strategy. Luckily, we had the leadership who were willing to and able to do that. People like General Patton, people like Eisenhower. You know, Patton was a uh, World War One veteran. That's where he cut his teeth in World War One. Instead of sticking to what worked in World War One, where it was essentially trench warfare on the Western Front, which is where the United States was involved, he adapted. He changed. He figured out the ways to do it. He used tanks so effectively. That's what Patton was best known for. Whereas in Russia, people. <laughs> People in charge over in Russia in World War II were like, well, we don't have the, quite the best equipment that everybody else has. You know what we do have? We've got a whole bunch of people, whole bunch of people, and we're going to use that. We're just going to overwhelm the Germans. And they, they use those World War I era strategies of just attack the position yeah. and keep attacking until they run out of bullets, essentially. And that's why you had a, a death toll 
as high as you did there. But I mean, when you go down through the list, World War II was truly a world war. I mean, you, you look at the deaths by country, Albania, how many people would think of Albania when it comes to World War II? 30,000 dead. Australia, 39,000 military dead. Austria, 261,000. Remember, Austria, the birthplace of Adolf Hitler, part of the German uh, empire there, the Nazi regime. They, they took over Austria very quickly. Belgium, 12,000 people. Brazil, 1,000 Brazilians died in World War II. Really? 1,000 in the military, 2,000 overall, yeah. Bulgaria, 22,000. Canada, 45,000. China, 3 to 4 million with 20 million civilians dead. You, you can read about the Japanese uh, the invasion and uh, yeah, the rape of Nanking and so much more horrifying stuff over in China. Czechoslovakia, 25,000. Denmark, 2,100. Estonia looks like the military there didn't really exist. That's why you'll look and you'll say, well, nobody from Estonia died and there were a lot of uh, battles going on there between the Germans and the Russians. They didn't have their own military. Uh, what they did have was 51,000 civilians who died in, in World War II. 5,000 Ethiopians, 95,000 Finns, 217,000 Frenchmen, 5.5 million Germans, 300,000 Hungarians, 87,000 Indians fighting on behalf of the British Empire, of course, 300,000 Italians, 2 million Japanese, 17,000 from the Netherlands, 12,000 from New Zealand, 3,000 from Norway, 57,000 from the Philippines, 240,000 from Poland, 300,000 from Romania, 11,000 from South Africa, 8 to 10 million, as we said, 8 to 11 million from Soviet Union, 383 Englishmen, 416,000 from our United States of America, and 446,000 from Yugoslavia. With worldwide casualties, battle deaths, 15 million, battle wounded, 25 million, civilian deaths, 45 million. Wow. And it probably would have gone on longer, and those numbers would have been higher had the United States not entered in when we did. Or it might have ended earlier with some German horrible, victory. horrible people in charge of, uh, of Europe and uh, the Pacific Theater. I mean, the Nazis, uh, we know about them, but the Japanese Empire, as you mentioned, the rape of Nanking, essentially the Japanese emperor was believed to be a god. Any decision he made was okay. So you had people within essentially his administration, while he was the be-all, end-all, he had advisors, and he had some advisors that were uh, not very nice, to say the least. I mean, there were some horrible things taking place in Korea during World War II, taking place in China, just just awfulness. And again, all kicked off from our perspective 76 years ago today on December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy and a date that we need to remember and we need to remember what came after it. So that's why we've been talking about it for this whole segment. And again, Matt Sainsing reached out and found Jim Downing, second oldest known Pearl Harbor survivor. We just played the clips from him about what he saw on that day. There's a full story on that at connectingvets.com. You can go and check that out. Uh, we're seeing breaking news coming up, uh, being reported that there are protests breaking out in Israel over the uh, decision by the United States to recognize Jerusalem as the capital. Um, yeah, we're not going to get too much into that yeah. on this show. We'll leave that one alone. Um, I'm sure that will go on long enough for us to have to talk about it at some point. Yeah, probably. We'll see what's going to happen there. Um, yeah, the leader of Hamas also this morning calling for uh, a new war against Israel, essentially. it's uh, Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on over there. So we will keep an eye on it. But yes, breaking news that protests have broken out. 
uh, seeing some video of people throwing, uh, you know, throwing rocks and things like that at the Israeli military and police forces. That's something that they're quite used to. So we would hope that it stays to just people throwing rocks. But as we've seen in the past, uh, there there may be more to follow on that. Of course, uh, if there is, and if it happens anytime this morning, you'll be able to hear about it here at ConnectingVets.com. Another big news story, we've now got a whole bunch of congressional members and senators calling for the resignation of Al Franken. And there's a military tie to that. Remember, the first accusation against him was made by Leanne Tweeden, former Playboy Playmate, who was on a USO tour with him where she says he forced his tongue down her throat. And, of course, we have photographic evidence of the groping picture. Uh, there were also military members on USO tour that he was on who have made some claims uh, since then, too. So, you know, this is something where, for a while, seemed like uh, people were going to just kind of let let him do his thing. Now, uh, led, I believe, by Senator Kirsten Gillibrand from New York, um, there have been many rising calls, and uh, we'll see what happens with that today. Apparently today he's going to make an announcement addressing his political future. Uh, again, this is someone who was on a USO tour and during that time is accused of sexual assault on a few people. Also some other accusations afterwards. So another story that we'll be keeping an eye on here. We're going to be talking to Joe Chanelli, executive director of AMVETS, in just a few moments. We're going to find out what they're focused on this week. So stick around. Morning briefing back after this. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We are CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at ConnectingVets. Welcome back to The Morning Briefing this Thursday, December 7th, 2017. Pearl Harbor Day here at ConnectingVets.com, which I need to remind you is the website for you, made by us. And we are a team of veterans and the veteran adjacent, military spouses, military dependents, all work together using our experience and our knowledge to find the stories, the information, the entertainment that you need. You can find all that at ConnectingVets.com, and you can be kept abreast of what's going on at the website by following us on social media, where we are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Got some big stories up there right now. Uh, you know the one about the VA ID card that you could uh, apply for as of last week? Uh, not so much anymore. They've halted the application process because of issues with the website, as correctly predicted by our Jonathan Copanger, former VA employee. That story and so much more on the website right now. So go check out ConnectingVets.com, including Matt Sainsing's interview with Jim Downing, the second oldest Pearl Harbor survivor. That and so much more right there. Just a click or a tap on your phone away. Go go ahead and visit the website. I'll, I'll, I'll wait for you. Just kidding. I'm not going to wait. Our next guest is... A man who has an interesting background that includes, of course, military service. If he's on this show, you know that's the case. But we're going to talk to somebody who has a background in archery, cross-country running, actually for the military. He's run a marathon in two hours and 33 minutes. And while those things are all interesting, they may not even be the most interesting things about our next guest, Jimmy Blackman, who we welcome to the show right now. Jimmy, good morning. How are you? 
Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's absolutely our pleasure. So as I mentioned, you are a veteran specifically of the United States Army. So let's start off by finding out just a little bit about who you are. Where'd you come from? What did you do while you were in? And when did you get out? So, uh, you know, I'm a Mill Village kid from northern Georgia. And uh, the only thing I ever debated in life uh, in high school, I guess, was which shift I was going to work. The mill was a foregone conclusion. <laughs> and uh, Army recruiter came by one day and knocked on our raggedy screen door and said, hey, son, how'd you like to join the Army? And uh, the rest is history, I guess. It was a way out. So I enlisted uh, 1986. Uh, he told me about the Montgomery GI Bill that day. And I said, yeah, sign me up for some of that. Sounds good. And uh, that wound up uh, getting uh, my college paid for, at least partially. And I was commissioned in uh, 91, went into aviation, flying helicopters, and uh, went to North Georgia College. So, of course, I had to go to Ranger School, Airborne School, or you couldn't go back to see anyone at North Georgia. It was kind of a (laughs) mandatory thing. (laughs) And uh, and I spent spent the next 25 years uh, in mostly – cavalry units flying uh, the OH-58 Delta Kiowa, and uh, then uh, 12, my last, uh, I guess 12 of my last 14 years in 101st Airborne Division making churns to Iraq and Afghanistan, and uh, finally uh, brigade command there, and then after that uh, off to the Pentagon to work on the joint staff for the chairman as the War Plans Division Chief, and uh, that 12 years in 101st, uh, you know, the result of that was I missed uh, the high school careers of my oldest two kids. I had two more at home. Uh, my book was doing really well. I had some opportunities, and I decided uh, my wife and I, the best thing for the family was in October of 16 to uh, transition to the next chapter in life. So uh, with my enlisted time and officer, 30 years uh, total, and uh, retired uh, October 16, and now just uh, writing and speaking professionally and consulting. You know, it's interesting that you just mentioned uh, missing your kids' uh, high school careers, essentially. I was just talking to a buddy of mine, uh, Bill. He's a warrant officer in the Army and a Black Hawk pilot, and he has just learned of you know his upcoming deployment schedule. It looks like he'll probably miss his oldest high school graduation. You know, a, a difficult time to go through all of that stuff, particularly as you're, you're nearing the end of your career, I suppose, for him and for you at the same time. What do you remember most about uh, your transition period and getting out and getting to be with your family more? Was that the biggest benefit of it? Well, I tell everyone the most liberating thing I've ever done was the ability to <clears throat> to own the calendar. <laughs> so, uh, you know, unfortunately, I'm self-employed, so obviously I can say no or, you know, I can block time off. And, uh, you know, I, I was busy in the fall. I was on the road 50 out of 80 days in a hotel, but I blocked two weeks for Thanksgiving, and I just flew back in last night from Palm Beach. I was down there speaking, and I when I got to the hotel after just two weeks straight of being at home with my family for Thanksgiving. I wrote my wife night before last. I said, I got to be careful taking these long breaks because I I don't want to go back to work. I mean, it is, I guess, a career of just accepting and knowing that you're going to be away a lot. Even when you're home, if you're not deployed, you're training, you're in the field, you're at a at a combat training center, you're so focused on the next deployment that's on the horizon that um, it's hard to just dive into the family and really enjoy that. And and in my transition, that has been the one thing that I've really appreciated is is the quality time I'm able to spend with my family and and not worried about, you know, my mind is not on the next deployment or whatever that might be. 
Right, and that is certainly one of the big changes. And as you said, owning the calendar, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I I certainly uh, appreciate where you're coming from with that angle. We're speaking with Jimmy Blackman. Jimmy is an Army veteran and author and motivational speaker. Let's talk about the uh, the authorship aspect of your life. Now, as you mentioned, you're self-employed. You're doing your own thing, kind of the dream that a lot of people have after a, a career in the military, thinking, when I get out, I don't want to answer to anybody but myself, maybe my family. And you've been able to find a way to do that through your writing and your speaking engagements. So where did the idea for your book, Pale Horse, Hunting Terrorists and Commanding Heroes with the 101st Airborne Division, come from? Well, I've always written a lot. And and I'd written another book before that called Southern Roots, which tells the story of growing up in the South. Uh, So I've always enjoyed writing and reading good writing. Um, So as I return from that 2009 deployment in eastern Afghanistan, um, I had obviously been reading everything that had been written, and there were a lot of books out there by by journalists or writers that had done interviews, some of which their material was as accurate as they could get it, but they weren't there. And the thing that kept weighing on me is, you know, if we don't tell our story then it's really a disservice to our generation. We owe it to ourselves and to our posterity to to tell what we experienced. And I also didn't want, as I say in Pell Horse, I didn't want my soldiers to become serial numbers pressed between pages someday. I wanted their actions and who they were to be remembered, to make a footnote in history, so to speak. And so um, I decided to write the story. It was obviously a an amazing year. I mean, we were involved in the battles in which five medals of honor were earned, and, and I was, you know, these were our Hamburger Hills and and Pork Chop Ridges. I mean, these were, you know, big battles of our generation. And so uh, I wanted to capture that. There was also nothing written from an aviation perspective. Most of the stuff was a ground perspective. So I, I wanted to tell that story. You know, and that's an interesting aspect of it that you bring up where, you know, when we think about what's going on over in Afghanistan and and Iraq and Syria, you know, I think when when people think of that, they think of the boots on the ground guys, but they forget those boots up in the air, too. There's a lot of amazing stories to be told. And some of those stories you can find in Pale Horse, Hunting Terrorists and Commanding Heroes with the 101st Airborne by our current guest, Jimmy Blackman. Now. Have you ever struggled with writing? That's something that I think there are a lot of people in the military who have great stories to tell. But when it comes to writing, actually sitting down and structuring a book and then getting it done, particularly when there isn't someone pushing you to do it other than yourself. Have you ever had any difficult difficulty with that? And if so, how'd you get over it? Well, I mean, the process of writing is uh, <laughs> I don't like writing. I like having written so uh it is i mean it, it's work it's a struggle uh you, you know when you get it right it feels good it's very rewarding but but it's work but i will i will say this i get a lot of soldiers that uh reach out to me uh on social media you know, email linkedin whatever and they and they say hey i want to write a book or i've got a story i want to do this and i, I tell them you know writing a book's one thing getting a book published now that's a different story now that's the dark arts and sorcery and so uh you know really the only way through with a major publisher you have to get an agent and so i would say that's the biggest challenge is is once you once you work through getting your story told um you know getting it of course there are many self-publishing options and things today but with a major publisher you've got to go the, the the agent route 
Right. And of course, that book, you know, in this day and age, there is the ability to self-publish, but the publishers are still, would you say they're still the best way to go about it if you can do it that way? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you want it, you know, to to have an opportunity to really be read and, and seen, uh, you're, you're going to have to to get a, a, you know, a major publisher. It's just the only way. Right. And those books, of course, now also being available in so many places and in so many forms. I mean, people can can download your book onto their Kindle or can uh, you know get it uh, in a hardcover form. There's so many different ways for people to do this and so many different ways that they're sold. And we've talked to f- some of your fellow authors before about one aspect of it that, you know, with the ability to get your product out to people in so many ways, like through Amazon, for example, uh, there's also that instantaneous feedback from people who, who have read it. And your book has been very well reviewed on Amazon. It's like four and a half stars. I think it's got zero percent one star ratings, which I don't know if I've ever seen that before. So congratulations on that. But what has been the response that you've gotten from the public and from your fellow veterans in in regards to your writing? Uh, it's been very positive. Uh, you know, I my approach, uh, and I don't compare myself to Mark Twain at all, but a, a quote that he made one time was he said, some some writers' words are like fine wine. Mine are like water. But fortunately, everyone drinks water. <laughs> and so, I, you know, my writing is uh, I try to bring it home. Uh, I, I'm just a poor old boy from the, the Appalachian Mountains in northern Georgia. And, and I bring a lot of that into Pale Horse and talk about playing cowboys and Indians as a kid and what I learned in terms of fire maneuver and reconnaissance. And, and, and I think I personalized it in a way. And fortunately, my soldiers were willing to open up and share some intimate thoughts that, that these soldiers come to life. Uh, one of the things some of the uh, early uh, publishers uh, were worried about, and, and we had some folks turn us down because they felt it was too broad and had too many characters. And uh, some of them wanted me to narrow it down, and I, and I refused to do that. And I, you know, my agent was like, we'll find the right publisher. Um, th- this thing covers the whole year. Most books are written about one battle or one event. Um, you, you get to see this organization go through an entire deployment, and I, I wanted that uh, because I wanted the people to see that it isn't just one fight. It's you went out and had a major fight today or battle, but tomorrow you went back out and the next day you went back out. And then I, I really spent a lot of time telling the background and introducing people to these soldiers, um, in a very intimate way. So people have uh, received that well. The soldiers uh, really appreciate their story being told. And I'll tell you one, especially Jake Andrews was in my intelligence section and uh, just a a unique character, uh, brilliant mind. I mean, just a problem solver. But, uh, but, you know, he was a chain smoker, had thick glasses, probably picked last for the kickball team when he was in elementary school. Uh, <laughs> but he had this sense of humor that was just this dry sense of humor. My officers would come in to ask him questions, and he would insult them, but it would go over their head, and they wouldn't get it. And he would do this little <laughs> thing. It was like sport watching it. You know, I loved this guy. But as I'm writing and describing him, I was very, I was worried because I thought, man, I, I don't want to offend him, but I want to be honest, you know. And so finally, I, I found the right words and I described him. And about two months after the book was published in hardback, 
I got a note from his wife with a picture. Or yeah, she had been his girlfriend during it. She was married to him now. But anyway, she took she took the book Pale Horse and she cut the page out where I described him as a person. And then she took the front cover and cut it out and she had it framed and gave it to him. And that was his most proud. He was so proud of that. And that alone was worth writing the book. I was just so happy that he was proud to see, you know, how he was portrayed in this book. And yeah, that's who I am. So that was pretty rewarding. That's fantastic. And you know what? As a former enlisted man myself, I can tell you it's a special skill that you have to develop to be able to insult the officer without them realizing it. <laughs> but it's an important it a one. Blast it's an important tool yeah. for someone to have. And speaking of tools, you've got a couple others in your bag. You know, I know some author, some authors who are not very good speakers. They're good at putting their words down, their works down on paper, but when they get up in front of a crowd, they are uncomfortable to say the least. You don't have that problem because along being with an author, and we're speaking with Jimmy Blackman, U.S. Army veteran, author, motivational speaker, you get up on stage and you speak at corporate events and other places. How did you get into uh, that field of work? Yeah. Well, I have always been a storyteller. I mean, if you went back to the soldiers who have served with me forever, I, they would all, you know, remember me sitting on a bucket telling stories. Uh, and that that comes from my childhood. Uh, I grew up, as I said, uh, just a, a poor mill village kid in, in the South. And uh, I sat on the, the back porch as a kid at the knee of old men and bib overalls who would tell stories in the most colorful, charismatic way, and they would just mesmerize me. I mean, these guys could, could make you taste the blood in your mouth from a fist punch they took at a beer joint in 1950. I mean, that, that it was just, it, they were alive with these, with these colorful stories, and I always liked them, and I started mimicking them when I was a kid. My grandpa thought that was funny. I, I would tell their stories, and he would, he would have me tell them, and they'd laugh at me, and I found that I liked the attention. I liked telling the stories. And so I'd always been pretty good at that. I like good speakers myself. So uh, I think that helped the writing. I remember having a discussion with my agent once. And I said, you know, my weakness is my grammar. And he said, Jimmy, we can teach anybody to grammar. We can edit anybody's grammar. You can't teach a man to tell a story. That's your gift. So don't worry about that. Tell your story. And so um, that that's what I did, and that helped the writing. And now with the speaking, that, that does come somewhat natural from growing up around men who understood tempo, passion, emotion, uh, timing, uh, all of those things. And so I decided to give it a try, you know, convincing my wife to have faith and just uh, <laughs> transition from not a Uncle Sam paycheck, but to a corporate paycheck, but rather gig to gig living was a little more challenging than actually me just saying, hey, I think I can do this and go for it. As someone who gets on stage in front of civilians and uses your military background in many ways to kind of uh, help them along and give them some ideas, what do you think that the military retiree, the veteran, can offer to the civilian world as far as, you know, maybe leadership, maybe it's uh, planning, maybe it's structure? What is it that you think we have to offer to the civilian community when it comes to, uh, you know, things like you speak about? Wow. The practical application. I mean, we have we are a leadership laboratory. You know, um, I've been. Uh, I don't want to say overly critical, but I've been pretty critical about uh, so-called leadership experts that are 
that are academics. Um, you know, T.S. Eliot one time said, between the idea and the reality, between the motion and the act falls the shadow. And um, so there's, there's often this gap between these people who study uh, leadership and those who actually do it. And what I, I tell a lot of uh, you know, corporate leaders is you, you can watch Michael Phelps videos all day about swimming. You can read books. You can go to YouTube how-to videos and study the mechanics and of swimming. But you'll never learn to, sli- to swim until you jump in the deep end and start paddling. And, and leadership is the same way. And And so for the last decade and a half, we've been swimming. And we all have a story. We have experience. We've we've led in crisis. We've tried to inspire soldiers, and, and it's just about then taking those events, those experiences, and and translating them into content in which civilian leadership can apply them and see the the translation between what we do and what they do. At the end of the day, we're in the same business. We're trying to inspire human behavior. We're just trying to get the best out of our teammates. And no, no matter if you're in a corporate organization, you're in DOD, or you're coaching a little league football team, we're just trying to maximize the potential of everybody in it. And we have incredible practical experience um, you know, in, in combat. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We're speaking with Jimmy Blackman, army veteran, author, professional speaker, leadership expert. And along with that, I want to talk to you about a couple of things that pop up when you're looking through your bio, you look through your bio and you see some very impressive things. And then you see IBO world champion in archery and that you made a U.S. armed forces world cross country team and that you've run a marathon in two hours and 33 minutes during a, an, an army career as varied and as intense as yours, where did you find time for all this other stuff while you were in there, Jimmy? <laughs> well, I use that as an example of, uh, of balance. Um, you know, I, I've been pretty efficient throughout my career as a leader. I'm good at time management, and I'm, I'm pretty good and disciplined in terms of priorities and keeping priorities straight. And and so um, I've been able to balance quite a few things. I, I've, I've been very fortunate uh, that to excel in quite a few things. And obviously, I use that uh, as I talk to folks about uh, commitment and um, to, to what you're doing. I, um, I committed to running. I started running when I was about nine years old. And so I've, all, I've been a competitive runner for, for a lot of years. Uh, the army, uh, gave me an opportunity to do that at a, at a pretty high level. Uh, yeah, that meant getting up at four thirty and running and that meant coming home at night and before dinner going for another run, uh, for, a, for a long time, a lot of years, but, uh, I wanted to maximize my potential, see what I could do. And fortunately that, uh, that, you know, got some pretty decent results. Um, in the archery, I grew up shooting my dad shot competitively, uh, so uh, once the war began, the running was hard to, to sustain. I was getting older, and um, the deployments, you know, I couldn't train over there. And I started suffering from some injuries, so I uh, cut back on the running. I cycle a lot now. But the archery, I was able to maintain uh, a pretty good bit, and uh, it was easier to sustain, I guess, because uh, it, it's not as time-consuming. And I was able to to – fortunately win a world championship so um it, it's just a matter of you know how much you want to commit to the passions you have and and uh and then keeping your priorities straight right you know how important do you think it is for people to 
have those things to one, stay busy when they get out, when they retire from the military or leave the military, stay busy and also have a variety of things, a variety of interests to keep them going. Because honestly, I've seen so many people that I knew that retired and within five years of getting out, they were dead. They were gone. They didn't do anything and it just ended. How important do you think it is to stay active both professionally and personally? Yeah, it's critical. I'll be honest with you. I'll, uh, uh, I had a SAR major who I was really concerned about, uh, 31 years in the military and the military was everything to him. I mean, he really, he really didn't have any hobbies. He had his family and he had the military. And I I remember we would go for runs in the morning when he knew he was going to be retiring and, and he was having an anxiety attack. I mean, he was really concerned about, you know, what am I going to do? And, and am I, I'm not going to be as fulfilled because he was so passionate about being a soldier. Um, he, he has been able to transition well, fortunately, but uh, but there are many, as you say, that retire and, and just can't transition. A lot of them let go. They stop all the disciplines that the Army kept them engaged in, like physical fitness and, and things like that. And you know, they, they have health problems and they die. Uh, so it's critical for our quality of life that we sustain so many of those things. I mean, I, I still get up at 4.30 to 5.30 every morning. I get a lot of work done uh, before the world comes to, you know, <laughs> wakes up. And um, I still, you know, work out every day. Uh, I've changed some of the things that I focus on, but still work out every day. The only thing I don't do is go to the barber anymore, man. I, I if you see me, I got a full beard and I grow my hair out. So uh, <laughs> other than that, I still maintain most of the disciplines. And you know, same thing for me. I grew after 13 years in the Navy. The day I got out, I stopped shaving and I've trimmed it up. <laughs> of course, occasionally I don't want to look like one of those, you know, the hill people with the giant beard and everything. But yeah, there are some things that I have kept and some things that I've uh, let go of. And I think it's important to do both. We've been speaking with Jimmy Blackman. Jimmy is an author, a motivational speaker, a leadership expert, and was the commander of, uh, you know, amazing men and women and wrote about that in his book, Pale Horse, Hunting Terrorists and Commanding Heroes with the 101st Airborne Division. You can find that on Amazon.com and wherever else fine books are sold. And Jimmy, if people want to find out more about you or more about uh, your career as a speaker, where can they go to do that? JimmyFBlackman.com. And that's B-L-A-C-K-M-O-N. Most people spell it A-N, but O-N. So JimmyFBlackman.com. It's got video, all the links to all the social media and the speaking calendar, the topics, the bio, everything. Wow. And it's a, I've checked out the website. It's got a lot of great content on there. And if people are interested, they should definitely check out JimmyFBlackman.com. Well, you've been listening to the Thursday edition of The Morning Briefing, December 7th, 2017. On behalf of myself and super producer Jake Hughes, thank you very much for joining us today. And we hope you join us tomorrow. VFW is in the house on Friday. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.